So, uh, do you want to do the intro this time? Welcome to Shitty Project A Plus, the Project A Plus you know and love, but without the other bits. <laughs> Minus all the bits that made it into a podcast. That was good. Now it's just us, like saying, "Hey, did you watch any movies? Yeah, did you watch any movies? Yeah." We used to be a podcast that had projects, and now I just have the A Plus. Am I right? That's right. Well, my name is Hunter, and your name is what? No, my name is Hugh. No, it can't be Hugh. That's not a name. So, how's the virus been treating you, bro? Um. I, I don't know. Uh, it's, been, it's been okay, I guess. Still get your sense of smell and hearing? Yeah, yeah. Seems like our country's going to be pretty fucked, but we already knew that. Uh, yeah. Because the administration is estimating that the death total, the death per death total, uh, or the per, per day death total, rather, is going to double in the month of June. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that's true in Australia. Probably not. Seems like you guys are doing pretty good. Oh, I don't definitely know. not. We're doing exceptionally well in comparison to the United States, I can say that much. But I feel like most countries are doing exceptionally well compared to the United States. Mm. Maybe, not, maybe not Brazil. How is Minneapolis in particular? Uh, it seems fine. Um, actually, the Minnesota, uh, I think, um, infection rate per capita is the lowest, or it was the lowest oh, really? in the nation. So yeah, it's pretty Wow. So you escaped low. from the, the highest and went to the lowest. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, but who knows if that'll... Sp- keep that statistic because uh, they've just increased testing by like well they're trying to increase it to 20,000 tests a day uh, which is a pretty it doesn't sound like a ton of people but the state of Minnesota only has like 5 million people on it so and we're starting to like not reopen stuff all the way but businesses are or retail businesses are out to open if they can do like curbside pickup and stuff like that right um, has yours started to lift at all they're reviewing the effectiveness of the current measures in a few days and then they will make a decision as to whether they lower the level of lockdown restrictions from stage three to stage two mm. or something like that. So at the moment, um, you're only allowed to leave the house for four things, I think it is. So for shopping for essential supplies, exercise, work, uh-huh. and uh, something else, I think. But fairly limited. And uh, police are patrolling the streets, issuing spot fines to people who have left their houses for different reasons. Mm. I don't know how they could prove anything, though. You could just say, I'm exercising. Or you just be like, <laughs> they, I'm going to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, they have issued fines to people just like sitting around or standing around or something. I don't know. Every time I leave to go to work, uh, which occurs at about 12.30 a.m., mm. The streets are deserted, as you'd expect at that time anyway, but doubly so at the moment. And uh, an ominous cop car is patrolling about. So far, I haven't been stopped and questioned. All right, I said we uh, get down to it. Get down to brass tacks. Yeah, do you have any other coronavirus uh, gibberish you want know, to spout off about? I do not. Um, so, life situation looking bad. 
Wait, so you said the system for getting your money is confusing? Were you able to get a paycheck, at least, or some I've got assistance? my money, yeah. I'm getting oh, my nice. money. Nice, nice. How much are you getting? The maximum amount? No, because I'm still, I've still got hours at work, so it's reduced. Mm. So how much, how much are you getting? Uh, it's unclear what my regular amount is because it's, again, it's all very confusing. And I've, I've dealt like intimately with government systems when I was working on that side of things. And I still find it very confusing the way they've outlined this. So mm -hmm. to wonder what your average person is experiencing. Probably utter uh, bafflement. I mean, they could well be more adept at it than I am because this is my first real experience dealing with this particular department. And you're, you're also a moron. The system is designed to sort of make you feel bad about <laughs> receiving money. Yeah, yeah. It is quite dehumanizing, I think. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like uh, any sort of encounter with that level of bureaucracy. I mean, I mean, your in your case, it's a little more serious than mine was, you know. But if I was like desperately needing money to pay rent or something like that, then yeah, I'd feel like it was a complete nightmare to get the the money that I got. It took so long. Hmm. And like a lot of my friends who have tried to do the same thing have, have run into trouble with the the service. I got I got lucky because I applied um, relatively early on, you know. Right before it was like swamped with users. Yeah, but still the website went down. Like like I, I had to like fill out the application like fifty times maybe before I could uh, accept it or before they could accept it. Wow. Okay. Because, like, it, the thing it would do is it would be, like, okay, you know, put in, you know, the information, you know, like, your work forms and, you know, pull your company that you work for and stuff like that and, and you know, the period that you work for them and, and everything. But I would, like, get through the first, like, two or three pages of, of like, questions that they asked. And then it would be, like, oh, your session has expired. Please try again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was a nightmare. Fuck Centrelink. No, they're called Service. They changed their name from, I said this at some point, but they changed their name from Centrelink, right, to Services Australia. There's something ominous about how anonymous that sounds and generic. <laughs> That's why when they messaged me, because after you register your interest, they send you like a text message before they contact you. And between registering my interest and receiving that text message, their name had changed. So I instantly thought it was a scam when I received a message from Services Australia saying they wanted to verify my identity or something. Mm. That's my story. Alright. Well, should we get on to our phone podcast or? Let's do it. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. I did a little bit of uh, poking around on Letterboxd, and you know, I made a startling discovery today, mm. which is that for the first time in months, a year, years, maybe ever. Possibly years. Not ever. We have watched the same number of films for bonus features. I'm sure that's happened before. Yeah. But this is the first time where you've watched more than two films in quite a while. <laughs> it's certainly the first time I've watched as many films as you for a long time. And we'll see if next week you can watch more than me. Mm. That'll be the next uh, accomplishment. In the early days, there, there would have been occasions where I watched more than you. Mm. 
but um, not 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 for a very long time. I'm not going to go back and listen to the episodes. You should. <laughs> They're great. They hold up really well. And then I'm going to put a gun in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll be the end of the show. So, because this is the big day for you, I think I'll allow you to go first. And uh, Hugh, what was the first film that you watched for this week, this podcast, this week? <laughs> well put. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I'm a very intelligent and articulate person, so. Uh, so the first film I watched this week was uh, The Battle of Algiers. Hmm. So I haven't been in the mood to watch films when I'm winding down in the evening. So I decided to try a different tact and uh, watch a film for breakfast mm. when I'm fresh and I have a, a, a delicious cup of coffee beside me. And I feel like in that particular state, I'm uh, in the mood for something challenging. Mm. Right? Something that may not be a pleasurable viewing experience per se in the moment, but, you know, which provides intellectual nourishment. Like, like taking medicine, right? Sure, sure. I mean, sure, there'll be, there'll be some pleasure there if you're watching good cinema, right? There's pleasure to be had there, but it's a different type of pleasure from your average popcorn film, right? It's like, it's like the difference between, you know, putting your hands on your pants... Right. Pleasuring your own set of genitals mm-hmm. and having really, um, you know, good sex with someone, uh, a partner. Is it? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the that's the great comparison. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick with it. All right. So anyway, the first film I watched was. Did I say this already? Did I say yeah, the you title said, of the film? You, you did say the title of the film, actually. Okay. Good. Thank you. I'm going to say it again. The film mm. I watched was The Battle of Algiers from 1966, directed by Gillo Pontecorvo. Mm. I don't know what accent that was trying to be, but... Uh, Italian? Well, he's Italian, so, yeah. A film that I have uh, mixed feelings about, you. Indeed. And uh, I have somewhat mixed feelings as well. Perhaps not as uh, mixed as yours, but, mm. you know... My response is diluted somewhat. Mm. What? That doesn't even make sense. No. Hmm. It's okay. So, uh, what is the battle of Algiers, Hugh? I mean, stupid, you know, I assume stupid, that... Stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so, what is the battle of Algiers, you ask? Yeah. Uh, the actual battle or the film? The film. Okay, so the film takes place during the Algerian War. Mm, I've heard of that. Which occurred between the years 1954 and 1962 Mm. and concerned the occupying, an uprising of Algerians Mm. seeking independence from said French forces. Uh Uh-huh. That was well, well explained. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was genius. Um, now, the film has a reputation for being even-handed in uh, its depiction of this conflict. Mm. Although it clearly favours the Algerian side of things. And really, the, the point of view of the film is, is more aligned with 
the Algerians fighting the French authority, even though it does switch back and forth between the two sides, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a film I was ever particularly interested in watching, independent of its reputation of, of, as being a great film, right? Mm. Like, nothing about the, the content of the film, or at least as much as I knew about it, excited me to the prospect of watching this, right? Mm. Yeah, watch it, I did. Because as I said, I was fresh and I was looking for something challenging. And I was like, well, I could tick this one off the list, see what all the fuss is about. And uh, there's some very impressive things in this film, I will say. Uh-huh. One thing I want to point out was the, the public protest that is depicted at the end of the film, staged in such a way that it seems to be like indistinguishable from what it would have actually been like or what a similar protest would be like. And it made my head spin the prospect of actually like staging that. Mm. So there, there was there were certainly uh, very impressive sections of this film. Um, I could have done without the shots of people crying, which I thought gilded the lily somewhat, <laughs> mm. um, especially because they appear to have used uh, non-professional actors. There's a lot of non-professional actors in this film, and it, it appears that the people they cut to who are crying in, in reaction to some traumatic thing that has occurred, they appear to be non-professional actors as well. And it looks as though uh, they have actually, like, applied a tear to these people's cheeks <laughs> mm. instead of actually induced tears from them. Are you saying these people are crisis actors, Hugh? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, I could have done without it either way if it was a convincing crying person or not. Uh, I think it was kind of unnecessary because it, it can be... this. This film, even though it purports to mimic newsreels in the way it's actually filmed and the way the events unfold before us, it's not always that subtle. Mm, no. Um, scored by Ennio Morricone and the director. Good score. I'll give it that. It is quite a good score, although, again, it feels a little heavy-handed in places. It, it sort of telegraphs exactly what it wants you to feel. It's one of those scores that I feel like I heard, you know, beyond the film itself. I think the most remarkable thing about this film is the section in the middle where we follow three women who have been uh, entrusted to plant bombs in public places Mm. in retaliation for a bomb that the French deployed in the Algerian quarter in the Kasbah. I found that quite affecting. Mm. I think that, that kind of depiction of a very complicated conflict that does involve horrific acts on both sides is Mm. kind of well captured in this film. There has been some criticism about uh, the way it has depicted this conflict in terms of the actual historical record. And Mm. uh, one thing I came across was that even though the atrocities committed by the Algerian uprising in this film are only against white French occupiers as it were uh in in reality like six times as many muslims were killed by the uh the algerian uprising as were the french Mm. so you you had more conflicted feelings about it would you care to expound upon those briefly yeah i think it i think it speaks to the um i mean in part it's kind of hard to pin on the film itself but uh there's an article that came out um a couple of years ago that basically uh, detailed the way in which this film has been put to use by, like, the CIA to train its, like, you know, 
insurgent putting down uh, organizations mm. on the uh, finer tactics of a guerrilla warfare and how to like resist it. And um, I think if the film, I mean, you know, we could, yeah, it, 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 it does sort of lean on the heavily on the side of Algerians, but you know, the Algerians were so corrected there. Um, you know, use of violence to dislodge the French state, in my opinion. You know what I mean? That to even like have that pretense of neutrality uh, sort of suggests to me that the film can be read in that way, you know, as this like document on how to put down insurgencies. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, so I kind of have more questions about that. And um, I mean, I haven't seen it in several years. So perhaps my opinion would be swayed if I were to watch it again. But um, I find the uh, sort of faux neutralism, not really neutralism, to be a little uh, off-putting, I guess. Mm. Put it. Yeah. But maybe that was part of the you know, condition that allowed, to get, allowed the film to be made in the first place. So I don't know. Because presumably a European director couldn't make a, a film that was just uh, pro-Algeria uh, during that time without there being a, uh, you know, serious censorship, I assume. Well, it was nonetheless banned in France. Yeah, yeah. For a number of years. Yeah. But I've also been a little suspicious of uh, G, uh, uh, Gilo Patecorvo. Because of his relationship with the president? No, just um, uh, there's this article that uh, Jacques Rivette wrote about his earlier film, Capo. Uh, which is about the concentration camps. It's always sort of stuck with me, uh, stuck with me, and how like sort of um, uh, vacuous his approach is. So, worth reading the article. You can check it down. I can't remember the name though. Just search Jacques Rivette, uh, Capo, and I, I think it'll come up. But yeah. Although it should be worth pointing out that um, Pontikova is Jewish, mm. and Rivette is not. Like, was he just saying it's a a pretty poor effort to grapple with the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah pretty much. As opposed to saying there's anything morally wrong with what he's doing. Morally wrong for that reason. Yeah, okay. I've always wanted to watch the bizarre film Burn that stars uh, Marlon Brando. <laughs> you heard about this? No. Very, very odd Saudi movie about um, Marlon Brando as this like colonialist and uh, it's like fake country. That Portacovo made. Yeah, I think it was the film he made directly after the Battle of Algiers. He ordered had a couple of films. Uh, all right, your turn. Okay, well, I'm going to go pretty quickly on this one because the first film that I watched this week is actually a rewatch, a film that I've talked about on the show before. It's Wong Kar Wai's Fallen Angels, mm-hmm. uh, which I think might be his, my favorite of his features all told. It's not, this film is often thought of as like a lesser uh, Chucky Express, but I think on the balance, I prefer this the mood and the vibe of this film a little bit more to than I prefer Chucky Express. It's a little like um, it's not quite as romantic as as Chucky Express is, um, hmm. and I don't know. I just I really I really dig the vibe of it a lot. Plus, you don't have to think about John Phillips as much. Hill. The guy from the Mamas and the Papas who uh, oh. had a sexual <laughs> yeah, yeah. relationship with his daughter. So uh, that's Fallen Angels. Uh, just a great moody sort of crime film. In part, I don't know, very odd. Odd stuff, good stuff. What was the next film that 
that Hugh watched. So I thought I was going to watch a film in a similar vein to the Battle of Algiers. Mm. Based on next to no information, but knowing the title and knowing that it's a classic and seeing the thumbnail image of it. And that film is Ashes and Diamonds, right? Mm. So the picture is of a guy in sunglasses and a jacket holding a machine gun, right? Yeah, kind of like the guy who wears glasses and... The Battle of Algiers. <laughs> exactly. And I was thinking, I was thinking, like, is this going to be a similar film? Is this going to be about an uprising or some sort of revolution? And again, like, these, these type of films are not really my jam. But nonetheless, I was like, I'm going to take my medicine. I'm going to see what this film is about. What was it about? So I watched it. It was nothing like I expected it to be, <laughs> which I was glad about. Because um, mm. I, I, I wasn't really in the mood for more. Battle of Algiers type shenanigans. Mm. This is this is quite a bizarre film, and I wasn't expecting it to be. Um, so Ashes and Diamonds is a Polish film, directed by. I knew I knew that much. Andrzej Wajda. Yeah, Wajda, Wada, Wada. I have Wada. I don't know. I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I did watch a documentary about it. And, like, you hear names in passing, I still found it difficult to work out how to pronounce his name properly. But anyway, it's a Polish film. It's set on the day on which the Nazis surrendered mm-hmm. at the end of World War Two, And this was kind of an ambivalent time for Poland, because on the one hand, you know, the Nazis were defeated, but on the other hand, there is the approach of the Soviet Union which will swallow up Polish life from that point forward, right? Mm. So it centers around this resistance force who are opposing the, the communist rule that is encroaching upon Poland. Mm. And this resistance is trying to assassinate the, the local secretary of the Polish Workers' Party. The film opens with a bungled attempt, um, and they end up killing to random workers uh, from a local factory. Uh-huh. And then the rest of the film takes place around this hotel where the secretary happens to be staying and um, the attempts of mainly two people to act out this assassination. Uh-huh. But it's quite an oddball film. Um, so for one thing, it stars uh, a famous Polish actor whose surname is Sobulski. That is... Mm-hmm. Close to how it's actually pronounced. I'm not sure how his first name is pronounced, but anyway, we'll go with Sabulski, who was sure. kind of uh, had a reputation for being the Polish James Dean. Hmm. So at the start of the film, when he was cast, he refused to wear historically accurate costume, mm-hmm. um, the sort of thing that the actual resistance forces would have worn at the time. Right. And uh, insisted on wearing his own clothes, so leather jacket dark sunglasses, and essentially looking like James Dean. Uh-huh. He, he puts in a very strange but very compelling performance that really is the engine of this film. I would say if, there, if there's any criticism that I would uh, level at this film, it would be that it can be over-stylized a little bit. Mm. Clearly hugely influenced by Citizen Kane and film noir, so this plays out kind of more as a more modern type film than I was expecting. 
almost kind of recontextualizing American genre tropes in a similar way to the French New Wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely a thread of offbeat humor running through the film. So I would definitely recommend it if you ever have the inclination. Yeah, I'll definitely think about it. Said so, is that it's sufficient? Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, <laughs> uh, my second film that I watched uh, is a film that uh, I know that you're going to uh, not be interested to in be talking about it, which is called Mobile Suit Gundam 3, <laughs> Colin Encounters in Space. Fascinating. Tell us more. <clears throat> so um, the Mobile Suit Gundam series takes place in the future where uh, humanity has left Earth. I mean, it stayed on Earth, but it has uh, colonized the stars, okay? Uh, and it follows the conflict that arises between the United Earth Federation and the uh, <coughs> Principality of Zeon, which is like a breakaway colony. Um, the colonies and the, the space sort of uh, settlements in this universe are called sides, and the people of the Republic of Zion uh, were on side... I can't remember. Which, are, which side it was, but it doesn't matter. Um, Spare no detail. I'll not. So, uh, the f- as with the first two films in the series, uh, this is adapted from the TV show of the same name, Mobile Suit Gundam, and it follows the adventures of Amara Ray, uh-huh. <laughs> who is the pilot of... So, mobile suits are basically these sort of... Um, wait, wait, wait. Everybody knows about Mobile Suit Gundam! Um, anyway, so <clears throat> mobile suits are these kind of like uh, bipedal tanks that are, you know, fairly humanoid in, in their design. Um, the uh, Zeons uh, use a variety of them, but the most famous are Zaku's. Uh, and the show sort of, uh, so uh, Amara Ray is the, um, the son of the designer of the of a Gundam, which is the Federation's mobile suit. Um, and So the Federation like anti-Zeonists. No. Uh, anyway, it follows him and uh, a bunch of other basically children soldiers who are conscripted to fight in this war because they all uh, evacuate from their um, home space, which is a space colony called Side 6, uh, onto the ship called the White Base or the Trojan Horse. Um, and it basically just follows their uh, adventures as they try to navigate... Um, you know, the war and, uh, you know, mm. do a little bit of growing up and stuff. Mm. Um, and, uh, eventually, oh, let me finish. eventually it's revealed that, uh, uh, Amaro and several of the other crew members and also their opposing numbers on the Xeon forces. Oh, and also I forgot to say that their rivalry, a rivalry develops between Amaro, uh, who's the pilot of the Gundam, as I said, and the star pilots, uh, of the Xeon forces whose name is, whose name is Char, and and Char has this sort of ambiguous relationship with Zeon as a whole and uh, you know Hmm. some things develop Uh, and uh, but they have a rivalry which culminates in this film Um, but anyway as I was saying uh, so that every in space humans that are born in space are all or have the potential to become something that the show deems new types which are basically humans with sort of uh, extrasensory uh, perception, which is uh, mm. something that is mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, and really comes to a head in this one, um, because eventually Amaro is forced to fight against Lala, who is a 
Uh, a pilot who, yep, a pilot who is adept um, as a new type, and uh, which basically uh, results in these sequences of bizarre and beautiful uh, psychedelica and surrealism, uh, which possibly is not expected when you go into a, a show that seems kind of, you know, hard military sci-fi as this does. Um, but that's part of the joy of Gundam is how just strange and bizarre it is. Uh, this <laughs> film sort of uh, takes us to the end of the conflict between uh, Zeon and um, the United Earth Federation. Uh, and it's uh, a great capper to the series. Uh, I highly recommend it. And, uh, uh, oh, this is anime, by the way. <laughs> Just to be clear. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, though, uh, there are, I believe there are a couple live-action Gundam movies. So I know one that was filmed in Canada. And, uh, yeah, that's about all there is to it. Mobile Suit Gundam 3 Encounters in Space. It's a great resident, uh, slightly bizarre ending to the... Uh, this uh, series of compilation movies. So, there you go. So it's also a compilation movie. Yeah, they're all compilation okay. movies, but um, yeah. And this one has such amazing uh, slices, uh, learning that Amaro's dad has suffered from oxygen poisoning and has become a brain-dead moron. Great stuff. Spoilers, I guess. Um, but uh, the Mobile Suit Gundam movies are very important in Japan because uh, at the time they were the highest grossing like anime films, and it's often the first the release of the first one is often cited as a landmark movement uh, moment in anime. So because of just how much it grossed, and sort of proved the viability of making feature length uh, anime films. Oh, well, that's good. So, yeah. So there you go. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. I watched The Small Back Room, mm. which is a film by The Archers, Michael Powell and uh, Emmerich Pressburger. A film they made after The Red Shoes, I believe. Mm. And after that Technicolor triumph, um, they made quite a contrasting film in The Small Back Room because it is a dark, brooding, noirish, black and white feature. It's quite unusual subject matter, I think. So it concerns uh, this guy called Sammy Rice, mm -hmm. who is like this boffin who advises the military about the viability of their weaponry and, and does sort of analysis about new technology that they can use in wartime, mm. set during the Second World War. Mm. One of the main threads of the plot is that there's been these uh, strange objects that have been dropped on Britain and people have touched these objects in some form and they've exploded. So some form of booby trap that the Germans are deploying on London. It's a new technology they're unfamiliar with. It's caused the death of like three kids and some random dude and uh, they want to get to the bottom of it. Right. So, it, and so this is where the boffins come into it because they want to study exactly what's going on and uh, that's sort of a thread that's sort of introduced early in the film but we do spend a lot of time just getting to know this boffin dude called Sammy Rice who happens to be um, uh, an amputee mm. so he's only got one leg and he has a wooden leg that causes him much pain and he also struggles with uh, alcoholism mm. as we all do 
So there are stretches of this film that are quite reminiscent of The Lost Weekend, uh, which was made a few years prior to this. And it has like a dream sequence in which he's fantasizing about drinking or trying to struggle against the desire to take to the bottle that uh, feels kind of self-parodic now because a certain type of dream sequence has become fodder for comedy over the intervening years. Mm. And when this dream sequence was happening, although it's very well realised, I did just think of like an episode of The Simpsons or something where there's like a surreal dream sequence um, because it has like a massive prop that they made of this bottle of whiskey. Um, So that's kind of fun even if it doesn't these days work quite as potently as it might one day have. Um, But as usual with Powell and Pressburger, it's a very satisfying film, even though, like, for long stretches of it, it, the actual subject matter, what it's dealing with, the kind of machinations and bureaucracy involving this particular department and how it works with the military and the government is kind of unusual for a feature film. It is based on a novel, and you can imagine this being more appropriately explored in a novel. But I really like the way that they make this work. And um, the central performance by David Ferrara is excellent. Um, Kathleen Byron is his uh, partner in this. And she's featured in a number of uh, Archer's films. But uh, yeah, pretty much like everything I've seen of the Archer's work, highly recommended. It culminates in um, a great scene in which um, Sammy is is trying to defuse one of these devices on Chesil Beach. You should go through and watch all of their films. I will. I've seen quite a lot of them now. Starting with Age of Consent and They're a Weird Mob. The two best. I mean, They're a Weird Mob is not an Archer's production, it's just a Michael Powell directed film. You should go through and watch all of the films that they made individually as well. Okie dokie. Now do that right now and then come back and report to me. All right, so uh, Hugh, uh, the the uh, third film that I watched this week, perhaps the only film that I watched that you would have any interest in. Mm-hmm. I guess fall. I guess fall ages, but that was a rewatch. So I don't really count that. Because um, I watched a little Japanese exploitation film entitled "Female Prisoner Number Seven Hundred One Scorpion." Hmm. And uh, this is a, a sort of women in prison film uh, starring uh, Maiko Kaji, who is this um, uh, pretty big. She became a pretty big star in Japan after this. Uh, just sort of a, a goddess of the Japanese, Japanese exploitation film or in genre film like Circuit. Um, and uh, she plays this woman who... Um, was sent to prison because the man that she was dating, who was this uh, cop, uh, sort of a vice squad, basically betrayed her to these gangsters who raped her, and then she tries to kill him, kind of fairly. He's thrown in jail, um, and basically uh, this experience kind of hollows her out and uh, makes her this um, vessel uh, into which she pours uh, the liquid hot... Um, soul stuff of revenge um and basically this movie is just her being tortured for its 85 minute runtime um but uh eventually she emerges from this torture as this sort of uh black clad angel of death who murders several yakuza and uh her boyfriend spoilers i guess but 
you know, when you go into this sort of film, you kind of know what to expect, I think. So something um, of a rape revenge film. I don't know. I, I would not say that this is that's the primary focus of the film. The, the thing that this film is mostly focused on is just uh, this character's, like, resilience um, for getting tortured. It has these... Um, it's got this, like, great, like, uh, gorgeous aesthetic, almost. And it has, like, several just, like, beautiful sets and... Um, I don't know. Uh, there's something. It's just this very strange and compelling film about like this woman getting I don't know abused by all these people, like by you know the the corrupt uh, prison guards. Who I think this film uh, really succeeds in making them seem like the most loathsome people ever. And mm-hmm. um, I enjoy how uh, corrupt it makes the Japanese government and the police seem. <laughs> Because I feel mm-hmm. like the vibe that I get from a lot of other media is that uh, Japan sort of takes a lot of pride in its like law enforcement, you know, um, and uh, this makes them seem like venile monsters for the most part. Um, it has some very shocking and grotesque scenes of gore, which I was not expecting going into it that I thought were quite compelling. Um, and um, I don't know. I just really I just thought it was really fantastic. Uh I mean, obviously, you know, it's a film that where lots of terrible things happen uh, to women, but um, I mean, it doesn't like diminish the impacts of them, you know, and it, it I, don't, I don't know how to to phrase it exactly, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to probably watch the other films of the series, so you'll hear me uh, ramble incoherently about them, too, so. And uh, Michael Keiji, who plays like the lead, is has just this fantastic like screen presence. She has these very like striking eyes that like I, I don't know like are very like sort of soul piercing and great. It's the mm. film uses her persona to great effect. Um, there's so many just great shots that are punctuated by her like uh, just smiling or like staring at the camera that are just are fantastic. Uh, and you can really see why she became a star after this film. Um, and uh, it also has this amazing sequence where um, the main character is thrown into uh, like this sort of solitary confinement cell with this other woman who is a police plant. Uh, and somehow the, uh, the main character realizes this and um, basically seduces this woman uh, to the point where uh, she's, she's so filled her with, uh, you know, the forbidden fruit of, of lesbian pleasure that uh, when this, this woman is extracted from the jail cell, uh, she <laughs> demands to be put back in to her superiors, which is great and really funny. Um, just a, yeah, just a strange and uh, pretty brilliant uh, Japanese genre film. Mm. Uh, that's Female Prisoner number 701, Scorpion. Cool. Yeah. The only other film I watched, the fourth film in this uh, epic week of viewing, mm-hmm. was Bon de Pas. The uh, Quentin Tarantino's uh, production company? Yes. I watched everything it's ever been attached to mm. in one sitting. No, I watched wow. uh, the English title Band of Outsiders, which was the seventh film by Jean-Luc Cinema Goddard as he credits himself mm. <laughs> in this film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, can I can I interrupt you real quick? Mm. Um, I, I, I was looking at the uh, the films that uh, the 
uh, a band apart uh, productions, uh, Quentin Tarantino's production company um, were involved in. Do you want to hear a couple of the uh, titles that uh, I was going to do the same, but I, I forgot about it. <laughs> so obviously there are the Quentin Tarantino movies. I'm just going to skip those. I'm going to start from the most recent film. That's not a Quentin Tarantino film here, which is uh, the second Dirty Dancing movie, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then we got two from Dust Till Dawn movies. From Dust Till Dawn 2, Texas Blood Money. And from Dust Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter. Okay. I'm more interested in the music video work. Oh, and then, yeah, there's there's so many music videos here. Uh, there is a the full-length concert film by Metallica called Cunning Stunts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then uh, we get to the really interesting part, which is uh, Goodwill Hunting, apparently a uh, band apart production. Mm. Some film called Curdled, and this is the film that made me uh, want to bring this up, which is that apparently Quentin Tarantino had a production hand in the uh, 1995 film. Are you ready for this? Uh, White Man's Burden. <laughs> are you are you familiar with this film? I'm looking at the poster. Uh, this is a film that the premise is that what if black people were white people? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I feel like that should be uh, coming to a podcast near you. I'm always interested to watch this film. It sounds totally terrible, but uh, absolutely insane. So anyway, please back to Jean-Luc um, Godot's <laughs> Abandon. Um, so it's it's frequently being called... Uh, the type of Goddard film that even a Goddard skeptic or Goddard ignoramus <laughs> might like. <laughs> Definitely one of his purely pleasurable films, I think. Yeah, it certainly has more yeah charm than some of his other films. And and I mean, I have to concede, as as somewhat of a Goddard skeptic, the good bits of this film are good, right? <laughs> the iconic parts of this film are iconic for a reason. Them running through the Louvre. Yeah, and the and the dance sequence, of course. Yeah. And you know the the metatextual stuff like uh, the the minute of silence where they actually mm. cut all sound while the characters just sit around in a cafe and stuff like that, right? All that works very charming mm. and playful. Um, as a whole, I think it still suffers from that tendency that uh, you see in, in Godardian films of feeling like it was improvised, and mm. certainly it was to a large degree. Yes. If you get one thing from reading the 600-page uh, biography of Godard, uh, everything is set up with the working life from, of John Godard, it seems that uh, improvisation was the primary artistic tool in a Godard's belt, as it were. So. Yes. And while that can work, and it does work uh, for a lot of this film, I would say, and, and certainly for some of his early films as well, it can also it can also lead to stuff that I find quite dull and bland. Mm, me too. And there are parts me of this too. film that are a little bit dull and bland, I would say. I definitely really like the mood of this film quite a bit. Yeah, me too. It's almost like a childish, like, melancholy is the primary tone. And I like the, the soundtrack too. Mm, me too. Me too. By French music legend Michel Legrand, the composer, the composer of such great films as The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. 
And he's it's in the in the credit opening credits it says the last film scored by Legrand question mark. You know, I I used to know why it said that, and I have forgotten why. So okay. I'm just assuming it it spawns from like some discussion, some they joke had at the time or, something. or something. Yeah, some in joke. Um, but uh, I'm kind of sick of the dynamic that it presents mm. with the typical new wave ingenue or waif. <laughs> mm. the, the, the hot woman but caught between the cuck and the alpha being lightly tormented by these uh, dominant male figures mm. older male figures but nonetheless there's, there's, there's a lot to enjoy and it's worth watching Good, yeah good film definitely one of my favorite Godards I'm not, not an especially huge fan of his I've decided but uh, I really enjoy the film so a lot of the stuff, a lot of the techniques and stuff that would be fresh at the time obviously aren't fresh anymore because it's had such an influence. Mm-hmm. Certainly Godard himself has had such an influence that uh, I can actually imagine like a lot of these techniques being employed in like a twee indie film in the, in the 2000s and being like the worst thing of all time. Well, uh, there's something just about the time that is baited and the music that makes it seem good and not bad, I think. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem twee because there's, there's actually a streak of darkness in the film. And, yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's why I said me- melancholy. Childish mm-hmm. melancholy. I think it sum- summarize a lot of Godard's uh, tendencies in that period. Um, you want to hear something very interesting that I just learned? Mm. Is that Michelle Legrand did the score for the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the very first film uh, featuring the Smurfs. <laughs> it's interesting because the, the Smurfs were were they, were they French or Belgian? I think they're Belgian. They're Belgian. They are Belgian. Yeah. Um, the Smurfs and the Magic Flute. Sounds terrible to me. Were you a Smurfs kid? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Before your time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was probably before years too. Yeah, but it was still sharing when I was a kid, so I was, I did watch it. Uh, I mean, I, t- I feel like I got some, like, you know, osmosis of them, but I can't ever recall, like, you know, consuming any Smurf-related media, so. All right, Hugh. Well, that was a very eloquent um, discussion of uh, Jean-Luc Cinema Godard. Uh, and I only watched one other film this week. Which is mm-hmm. the film that I talked about last week, I think, uh, that I watched at the commentary track called The Terror, uh, which is that Robert, Roger Corman film I Com- watched. Commentary track viewings don't count as viewings. <laughs> they, they do, I'm sorry to say. Uh, and I basically I mean, you can log them on Letterboxd if you want, and you probably shouldn't, but you don't need to talk about it. Well, You've watched three films. I'm not going to talk about it in any depth. Um, but I watched the. I watched more films than you this week. I, I refuse <laughs> no. to take that no. as <laughs> no, no. As a film. I I would rather tear on the podcast than concede this point. <laughs> I'll, I'll delete this audio, you motherfucker. Fine, I'll call you bluff. Delete it. Yeah, well, <laughs> delete it right now. <laughs> okay, I deleted it. What did you watch? What did you listen to? What did I you watched, not really watch? <laughs> the, it, the truth is, I, I did not spend too much time watching the images, but I listened to the commentary talk. I already said that the Roger Corman film, The Terror, which I talked about last oh. week. 
That's it. That's all I got. I'm done. I'm finished. Alright, um... That's it. That's all for the show, I think. That's all Unless for the show, you have anything I think. Else, you know, Unless you have anything else. Talk about. Alright, I'm gonna hit the stop button. Right, right now. Okay. Oh,